Well, hey, it's great to be here. I was thinking, I feel like, um, I feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. Um, it's great to be here. Don't know where to start, right? Don't know where to begin. Um, wow, I'm seeing all kinds of friends out here. This is great. And I hope you come to the lunch. Afterwards, uh, we're having a Q&A, and I've said all things, you know, all things are, are, are good. So you can ask anything. Ask me anything. I'm not going to tell you. I'll tell you the truth, but I'll answer lots of questions, and that's going to be fun. I love being with students and love being with you today. We're so glad to be here, and I'm grateful that Miller's here with me, my uh, cohort and partner in crime. I'll tell you, uh, it's good to serve alongside people you love. You know, the gospel always advances among friends. The gospel travels at the speed of relationships. And uh, I'm just reminded of that, coming down here with Miller, uh, just to be able to serve one of your best friends in the world is a good thing. It keeps you alive, it keeps you going, and it matters. So we'll talk about uh, that a bit more when we gather for lunch. But go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. You heard it read a moment ago. We could go several places, and I'm just going to land on a couple of verses here for the sake of time. And um, while you're turning there, I want to talk today about the preeminence of Christ and really the centrality of the gospel and the impact that it should have on us uh, as ministers, as stewards of the gospel. We are stewards of the sacred. And um, I want to talk to you today about how I'm convinced that we need to rediscover the gospel. Not only is our central message, but the motivation in all that we do. And uh, how it's still doing its work in my life. I won't pretend to understand all things here today. I'm on a journey with you. But let me ask you this to start. How many of you knew? I heard midterms, right? We got midterms. Anybody know this? Raise your hand. You know that midterms are right about now? Oh, good. Like three of you. This is good. Um, how many of you knew this? How many knew that Baylor University right now is on the AP poll, they're, they're fifth in the nation in football. Anybody know this? Okay, a lot more people knew about that. Okay, this is good. So that wasn't news, right? That's not news. How many knew that, I, I read this morning, they're number six in the BCS uh, standings. How many knew this? Raise your hand. Okay, this is not news either, right? Hmm. Here's the premise for uh, some thoughts today. News is not news. If it's something you already know. Not news. Now if you didn't know that. And you had been tied up somewhere. And you came out of decades. Of what has been Baylor football. Sorry. Um, and you, you're, somebody tells you. That they're like fifth in the nation. That would be news. Right? That would blow your mind. In fact. That they're in. I mean they're now in the running. Towards the national championship game. Is what we're talking about. That's news. My premise today is this. We've reduced the gospel of God's rescue and grace to no news. And no news is bad news. So look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. By the way, place this in context a bit. He has been saying, you know the passage, do you not? This is incredible. Verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, 
or rulers or authorities, all things were created, what does it say, through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. That is first, prominent, dominant, peerless, supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, Harkens uh, back to Hebrews 1, 3, right? The exact imprint of his nature. All of God's character dwelling in him and through him to rescue to himself all things. You see this word pon over and over again. All, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. He's covering all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'm going to talk to you today about the preeminence of Christ. You know, centrality of the gospel and the centrality of Christ would be to talk about Christ's right to be kept at the center of who we are, right at the center of where we're heading, right at the center of all we're doing, how we're blessed. But supremacy speaks of so much more. Supremacy speaks of Christ's right to keep us at the center of where he is, how he is imparting, how he is leading, where he is heading. That's something altogether different. And that's worth talking about, the difference between the centrality of Christ And the supremacy of Christ. And I think that's what Paul's getting to here. Look at verse 21. This will be our main text for the next uh, several minutes here. Verse 21. And you, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now, everybody say now, now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order that, now you Greek scholars here will note that's a henna clause. So this is a purpose statement. This happened in order that you might be, watch this, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And of of which I, Paul, became a minister. It seems to me the problem in our churches today, thus the problem in our cities, is that the gospel is no longer news. And I don't mean the gospel that we're reading about here. I'm not talking about the gospel that is central uh, to the entire um, redemptive story of God in the world. I'm talking about the gospel that has been preached in many of our pulpits for many years. Uh, Probably a gospel that many of you cut your teeth on. And I want to talk today about really a rediscovery of the gospel and how that plays itself out in our lives personally, not just in our message and in our ministry, but in our lives personally. And I hope to have a chance to unpack this a bit more at lunch. Uh, It's been life-changing for me. Some of you know, perhaps you know, the landmark study that was funded by the Lilly Foundation several years ago, where sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton first introduced their findings uh, in a book called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Anybody read this book? Some years ago, if you work with students, you need to read this one. Uh, But all of us learn much from this. It contained the results and and implications of the National Study of Youth and religion, 
What the study revealed was the common belief, the religious beliefs among this generation. By the way, many of you, this is when you were a young person in high school. This is about uh, seven, eight years ago when this study was done. So you're middle school, high school, some of you guys. And, and, and what they came to was this. The, the study revealed the most common religious belief among this generation, your generation, many of you, is what they called, you've heard this phrase, have you not? A moralistic therapeutic deism. That is that Christianity, the gospel of God's rescue and grace, again, in Christ, has been reduced to a behavior modification project. It's something like this. Uh, you're sharing the gospel. Here's the gospel that many of us in our churches, many people that we're preaching to, teaching, now guiding, many of us are trying to overcome. And it's something like this. Hey, you know, um, you're, you're, you're not as good as you ought to be. You know that, right? You're not that, you're not that bad, but you're not that good. In fact, you really are kind of bad. You're bad. I mean, not that bad, but you're bad. And by the way, watch this. Jesus can make you better. You're not that bad, but you could be better, right? Could be be Yeah, I could be better. I'm not that good. I'm kind of bad sometimes, but I'm not that I'm not as bad as So, and Jesus can help me get better. Yeah, he can help you better. And watch this. You get heaven. On the backside of this, you get heaven. Okay, wait. So I'm I'm bad, but not that bad. But I'm bad. I could be better. Um and I get heaven on the end of all that. I'm in. I'm in, right? So look, you unpack that. Watch this. You're, not, you're bad, but not that bad. That's not news. Right? That is not news. Jesus came, and he's really great. He's awesome. In fact, you follow him, you're going to live a better life. Not news. And you get heaven on the end. I thought I was kind of going to heaven. I thought everybody kind of was going to heaven, really. I mean, maybe a few, you know, deviants, Hitler. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know about him, but... You know, I was going to heaven. Not news. And we've reduced the gospel to no news. And again, no news is bad news. So Colossians 1, we could have gone to a lot of places, by the way. We could have gone to Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Some other passages. I mean, gosh, how about all the, uh, all the gospels, all the, all the epistles, um, Paul unpacking the gospel in Romans. We could have gone to a lot of places. I chose this one. The context here, of course, uh, Paul brings his attention now to the Colossian believers. He says, and you, which is, let's unpack this text for a moment. And you, which is in the emphatic position. This, mean, this means you Colossians believers, and I would say this, you students and faculty of Truett Seminary are the designated goal toward which this event encompassing heaven and earth is directed, okay? And then key to understanding this passage is to notice the you once were, right? Did you pick up on that? Up against now. Paul is setting up a contrast of the past and the present. And to catch this is to understand the power, the central truth of this text. So he says, you once were. Watch, he breaks this down. If you take notes on sermons, you can start right here. You once were, verse 21, enemies of God, alienated from God. Okay, enemies. In the NIV, it says estranged. The perfect passive participle indicates that they were 
we were once continually, persistently out of harmony with God. So you could say it this way. We were bad on the inside, hostile in mind. We were bad on the outside, doing evil deeds. We're just bad across the board because of your evil behavior, he says. And then Jesus solves our problem. Verse 22, Jesus, the reconciler, the problem solver, the covenant maker, the unstoppable redeemer. He has solved our dilemma once crushed under the weight of the holy demands of the law. God steps in and Christ becomes the solution. He solved our problem. Well, how has he done this? Look at verse 22. Now, that's the key shift there. Now, he's reconciled you. Look how he's done it. In his body of flesh by his death. The death and resurrection of Christ is the decisive event by which our reconciliation has come. And God made all of this happen with a particular uh, end in view. So from you once were to, here it is, you are now. Verse 22. This is the henna clause on the back side of that. To present you holy and blameless. Now watch this. Good on the inside. Holy. Good on the outside. Blameless. This, this, uh, this brings a, a priestly kind of reference. Commentators tell us as a sacrifice being presented to God that is now acceptable. And look at what's happened. We're at peace with God. Above reproach before him. Now this is a judicial reference. It's it's legal language of one who has uh, come before a court, before a judge. And in this case, found innocent. Blameless. Standing before him, holy God, blameless. And then watch this. Verse 23. uh, The proof, if, he says here, how would you know? If you continue in the faith. Now watch this. The language here has not a shred of doubt in it. Paul's not saying, you know, maybe, don't know, not sure if all this is sufficient. So you better, you better bring your A game. You better make sure you're staying it. Watch this, because the language can betray a misunderstanding that's critical here. It sounds like he's saying all this is good if, if you don't mess up. Right? If you, if you do your part in this thing, I love what the message says. Eugene Peterson uh, writes, you don't walk away from a gift like this, is what Paul's saying. You stay grounded in it. You're steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, he calls it, the gospel. Careful not to be distracted or diverted from it. Now watch this. Don't miss this. He says, you continue in the faith. Now in the faith, keep in the faith. This language, again, can betray a misunderstanding. The context here is a reference to the gospel. Okay, to Christ. This is not, watch this, our ability, my ability to keep the faith. Any more than, than salvation is, is, is my ability to keep the law. This is not about keeping the faith. It's the object of our faith. It is, it is not our faith, but the object of our faith that matters. This is what Paul's saying. Stay focused. I'd say it this way. Stay obsessed over the gospel. Don't walk away from a gift like this. Keep your heart set, your mind set on the gospel. And then he says, he says you, you do not shift from the hope of the gospel. You see that? He's saying, don't be distracted. Don't be diverted from the gospel. And how true is it? If any of you, and many of you are in ministry already, 
How simple is it for us to be diverted away from the gospel? Right? Do a lot of church things and miss the gospel altogether. We do this in our personal lives, don't we? Let me ask you something. How, when, you, when you're wrestling with a particular sin in your life, just on a personal level, you could think of what that is. Maybe it's habitual sin. Maybe it's something you're really wrestling with. You want to rid, you, you know, the Lord, you know you want to get rid of it out of your life. What do you do about that? Most often, I know what I've done. Most often in the past, I'll, boy, I need to, whew, I need to be more accountable. That's probably what I need to, I need to pray more is what I need to do. I need to read the Bible more. I mean, some verses. I need to memorize some scripture around that. That would really help me. I need to be accountable. If I need to confess my sin, that would be good. Um, I just need to. And all those are good things. Don't miss this. But what I'm essentially, I need to do, I need to just get better. I need to work harder. Um, let me ask you, you take that, that route. How's that working out for you? How's that going? And again, those are all good things, but, but here's the thing. What I've learned, if I take that route, and accountability is important, all those things. Scripture, don't miss this. Prayer, all the above. What I've learned in my own life is when I obsess over my sin and obsess over what I must do to get better, I don't, I don't get much better. In fact, gosh, mass confession here. I don't know if I'm getting much better than where I am right now. But you know what? When I obsess over the gospel, when I obsess over what Christ has done, when I start to unpack what it means to be justified by faith, that I've been reconciled before a holy God, that I'm completely forgiven, totally loved, fully redeemed by him. Watch this. I start to get better. But how about this? Getting better is not even the point. That's not the point. The point is not that I'm going to get better, but that Christ has already been better, has been best for me. Don't miss this. Just as central to your salvation as Christ's death on the cross is the fact that he lived the perfect life where you and I were crushed under the holy demands of God. And he met those demands. He's already been better for us. So I've learned that when I obsess over his great love for me, wow, then I'm really motivated to obey him out of my response to his love for me. And I start to get better. Always rejoicing in the fact that it's not even the point. So our great hope is not in our trans- transformation but in God's substitution through Christ. So how do we do this? I want to land with some practical steps here. or some things that I've learned. We can talk further about this at lunch if you can make it. How do we continue in the faith? And again, how do we stay, I'm going to say it this way, how do we continue to remain obsessed over the gospel? Because I believe that's what Paul's talking about. With Christ at the center, supreme, preeminent in our lives and in our ministry. How do we not shift from the hope of the gospel? Well, I believe it takes a rediscovering of the gospel. And again, if you take notes, I'll, I'll, I'll present these to you here. 
Rediscovering the gospel, first of all, the gospel, we've already said this, the gospel is first news. It's news. To understand the gospel as news is to really understand the gospel. I've said it. News is not news if it's something you already know. And most people that we're preaching to, particularly in my context in Dallas, North Dallas, most people think they understand the gospel. And we've determined that God's called us to make disciples to the glory of God by rescuing one another from cultural Christianity in order to follow Christ every day. And many of us will be placed in places like that. If you're in America, you're probably going to end up in places like that where people think they already get it and they don't. And they're sitting in our pews. It's why I I believe a big calling on my life is to preach the gospel to the church. And we will awaken a sleeping giant. The rediscovery of the gospel. First, the gospel is, is news. Secondly, the gospel is something that has already happened. You know, I love the missional shift of the church taking place over the past 10, you know, 20 years. But the gospel comes from completely outside of us. I think some of us have come to believe that, that the gospel is somehow not something we proclaim, but it's something that, we're, that we do. And, and I understand the, the gospel-driven life. I understand all that and that we need to be, gosh, you know, allowing others to see our good works that they might glorify the Father in heaven. Be like Jesus, right? Everything recalibrates back to Jesus. But we've got to remember the gospel comes from completely outside of us. It really is one-way love. You bring nothing to the table. And it's a proclamation. So watch this. The gospel is first news. The gospel is something that has already happened. Thirdly, the gospel as news must be proclaimed. The gospel needs a herald, right? The gospel has happened and the gospel simply needs a herald. No longer are we crushed under the holy demands of God. This is good news. I'll never forget it's happened Many times for me, if you've been on mission trips or in places even in our, our nation where people have not heard the gospel. I was in Guatemala, a little dirt hut, chickens walking around on the floor, and I'm sharing the gospel. I said, I believe the Lord's brought me here to tell you. I'm telling an old guy and his wife, the family sitting around, and I'm starting to share the gospel. I said, have you ever heard anything like this? And tears start coming down his eyes. He said, I've never heard this. I'm talking about how Christ died on the cross for him. And he and his wife, before I'm finished, they're weeping. And then he asks this. I'll never forget this. He says, why do we not know this? Why have we never heard this? He's weeping. And then this past fall, well, a year ago, Miller and I were in India, going from hut to hut, literally house to house, in a place where they'd never heard the gospel. Never seen Americans. I mean, in, in, in a, a lot of places where we were going. And I literally... I mean, I'm, I took, I took uh, some notes from Paul, uh, you know, when he's at Mars Hill. I, I, I said, I see you all are very religious people. Man, you got gods all over the place here. I've come here, and I, I, had, I had a ball. I literally had a ball, and I said, I come from here, America's here, and, and you are here. I came all the way here, and I came here for one reason, to tell you about the one God who created all things. And then I'd share the gospel. And as I'm telling, has any, have you ever heard this before? We've never heard this. Friends, it was news. The, the, the heaven-breaking, earth-shaking news of the gospel was transforming the hearts of the people. 
And news is not news if it's something you already know. The gospel as news needs a proclaimer. And then finally, the gospel is good news when it invades dark places. Right? It's got to go to where uh, people have never heard the gospel. And for many of us, sure enough, they're sitting right in our pews. And then there's other places that God's calling many of you out. But how do we do this? The gospel has got to remain core. I want to offer just some practical words before I close. For those of you who are in leadership and some of you who, and and all of us are in varying degrees, some ministry or pastoring or youth ministry, the gospel has got to remain core. You know, the pastor, the leader, you've heard it said, the role of leaders define reality. And, And what we must do is make certain that the gospel remains core. It was Peter Meldinius, Rupertus Meldinius was his name. He lived in the 1600s, little-known reformer. Anybody ever heard of Meldinius? Yes, okay, one of us, good. Uh, This guy couldn't get a break. He lived about the time of Martin Luther. And his one great quote is often, uh, you know, people give credit to Luther for saying it, and he didn't say it. Um, And this is a mind-blowing idea for me. Uh, when I heard Jim Collins, who wrote Built to Last, speak years ago, he talked about coexisting realities in an organization, uh, in, in all prevailing organizations. And the, ch- and, the, and the implications for this for the church just blew me away. Uh, he said, in, in, the, in a singular prevailing company or organization, and he used a yin-yang. I don't bust that out in church too often, but he used a yin-yang to make the point. And it was two coexisting realities. That was preserve the core, stimulate progress. Preserve the core, stimulate progress. Of course, the, the, the task of a preacher, I love this, pastor, is it's awesome because you're like, reality. I mean, I'll def- it's defined for me, right? I don't have to define reality. It's right here. And so we define the core as the gospel. And so we talk often about core versus non-core. Here's what Maldinius said. He said, in all things essential, and I use the word core, in all things essential, unity. In all things non-essential, liberty. And then he said, in all things, charity. Now, a lesser reformer who pastors a church in Dallas says it this way. In all things core, unity. In all things non-core, freedom. In all things, grace. And so what we've got to do, friends, in your leadership, in your position, you've got to define what's core, and the gospel is real clear. Uh, I mean, the the, the Bible's clear. It's the gospel, right? The core, you see, is very tight. It's the point of a spear. It's not, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's earth changing. It's the biggest thing in the universe, but it's very tight. You get outside of that and you get into non-core issues, right? Color of the carpet. All right, service times. What's the pastor going to wear? Does he have hair? Does he not hair? What do we know? All that's non-core, right? And the problem in our churches is that we try to, to make non-core issues core, or, or we make the core non-core. Now, in theological circles, that's called heresy, is what that is. But in pragmatic terms, uh, it's, the, it's the death of a church. And so what the church needs today, bold leaders who will say the gospel central to all that we do. Everything else is non-core. And watch this, because it's non-core, it's open to change. Or you've made it core by definition, right? Core does not change. Non-core, open for change. But watch this. So just because it's non-core, though, that doesn't mean it changes, right? Right? 
Okay, then what informs change? How do we know what to change and what not to change? The mission always informs change. The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, always informs change. So everything recalibrates back to the gospel, back to Christ. So at lunch, let's do this. I want to talk about why the gospel is so good for ministers. And it's in large part because you'll never be good enough. And with all the hopes and dreams of success in ministry, you know what? Most of the time you won't be. And what I'm learning is that the gospel leads to the only freedom that you're ever going to find. Your worth's not determined by the approval of others. It's not found in your performance. It's found in Christ. And what he's teaching me these days is that the way to real joy in life and ministry is what Jesus taught us all the time. I mean, all along. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of weakness. It's the way of renunciation. It's the way of brokenness. And to many sitting in our pews, it will be the way of foolishness. And it's the way that Christ is calling us to live. I'll close with this story. When I was about your age, I was a little bit younger. I say your age. We've got people of different ages here. But some of you students right out of college doing master's work here. I had an experience. I was an art major. Uh, Dr. Garland mentioned that I love art. And I uh, thought I was going to be an artist. I was going to be an illustrator, somehow make money doing that. Figured out, you, you really can't do that. So I uh, ended up preaching, which is an art in itself. But um, I was uh, walking through an art uh, show. It was actually at a mall. You've seen this, where you go in a mall and there's an art show. And it was a watercolor show that someone had put all these watercolor paintings out and about. And I was walking along with my, my roommate. He was a psychology major. And um, I was impressing him with all my great art knowledge. I was a sophomore in college. I mean, I knew everything there was to know about art, so I was critiquing the paintings. And uh, he was kind of walking along, and I, I was saying to, at this one, you know, why is the composition this way? You know, why are they doing this? And then if the light source on this one is coming from here, then why are the shadows doing this? And I was critiquing all the painting. I was impressing myself, you know, at this point. And um, then all of a sudden, I heard a voice behind me who said, Oh, you, you think you could do better? And I turned around, and I'm standing face to face with the artist, right? I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I was so embarrassed. And she says, you see that little sticker down there on the corner of that painting? And I don't remember exactly what I said, but, you know, I'm sure I'm, I see that little sticker I love that sticker. I like where you put that sticker. That is an awesome sticker. I like the color of that sticker. Um, she said, what does that sticker say? And I said, hmm. It was a, it was a price tag on the painting. Uh, it says $500. She said, yep, $500. She says, come here. She's not done with this punk, right? So we walked to the next painting. She says, you see this one? Uh, look, look at this little tag on this. What does that one say? I said, that one says $1,500. Well, I don't remember how many times she did this with me, but she was making a point. And it was a lesson that, of course, I still remember to this day. Um, She said this. She said, listen, I make a living doing this. And she was offended, right? She said, obviously, some people think my paintings are pretty good. Here's the lesson I learned that day. 
Um, never talk about the artwork with the artist standing right behind you. Don't do that. No, that, no, a greater lesson than that. And it was this. The value of the painting was not determined by my opinion of the painting. The value of the painting was determined by what someone was willing to pay for the painting. 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, You've been bought with a price. And then I'll add my own paraphrase. You glorify God with your life. Let the obsession of the gospel drive you. Let it love you to outgrace everybody that's driving you crazy in your ministry and in your leadership. Love them with the love of Christ. And go the way of the cross. Because it's the only way to real joy. Find your worth and your value in him. And you'll experience great joy in ministry as you serve him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. Together we praise you for how you're at work in our hearts and our lives. And I pray that today, Lord, we'll take what you've taught us, uh, this obsession of, of the gospel and the cross and all that you've done for us, that we'll continue to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And it'll drive us to do all that we do. So, Lord, we love you, and I pray blessings on this great seminary, Dr. Garland and all the staff and all the students here. Lord, may we run hard after you and serve you with all that we've got. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.